This week on Myths and Legends, it's a French fairy tale about parenthood, love, and deadly fairies riding chariots pulled by giant turkeys. You'll see why the best defense against lions is cake and how a picture message can drive you insane. On the Creature of the Week, we'll see how your pet toad might just be a few years away from breathing rainbow smoke and turning you into a kebab. This is Myths and Legends, episode 236. Piece of cake. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. The story this week is a literary fairy tale, first told by writer Madame Dolnois in the 1600s, a countess famous for her fairy tales. She was a very prolific French writer, and we'll talk a little bit about her life at the end of the episode. But right now, we'll just jump right into the story of a queen who's trying to raise a confident daughter. And kind of over-succeeding. The queen's servants looked through the letters. Uh, okay. Updates. The queen sat back, an excited, expectant grin on her face. Alright guys, let's hear them. How many marriage proposals did her 15-year-old daughter have after they sent out the portraits of her? A lot? Too many? Uh, none? The servant mumbled. In fact, the portraits were having kind of the opposite effect. The kings of the snowy mountain and golden plains, well, they just got out of the hospital. Hospital, the queen blurted. The messenger smiled. Yeah, they were some of the lucky ones. You see, our queen here was a widow. And as we know from folklore, there are two ways this can go. If the father of a daughter is a widower, he remarries, fades into the background, and an abusive stepmother takes over and makes the daughter live in an attic and talk to mice and stuff. If the mother survives, she holds on to power by sheer strength of will and puts her daughter first, preparing the girl to rule. The queen kind of overcorrected, though. She loved her daughter and saw the girl's path forward as being able to marry well, as the queen had done. So they went to go see some kings. They traveled around to different kingdoms, and the kings put on fets. Lavish outdoor festivals. Heavy on the lavish, too, because the original story says that kings spent three to four hundred million on a single festival. And while yes, that number is ridiculous, remember that this is like the 17th century. So multiply that by at least, at least seven or eight to get the 2021 amount. It was truly, completely absurd. But the wooing didn't stop there. The guys who were better on paper, the poets and writers, sent stories and sonnets. Eight thousand in all. No one really cared to read them, though, and with that volume, they would need a library the size of the castle to keep them. So, the stories fed bonfires in the capital for a year straight. The mother and daughter, exhausted after traveling to 20 different kingdoms seeking a match, settled down at home. But they wanted to give the king something to remember the 15-year-old princess by. So, they sent out portraits of the girl, it was also in this area that the royals kind of overdid it. 
because the paintings of the princess, best case scenarios, made the king's fawning thralls of the girl, and worst case, sent them to the hospital because she was so beautiful they became sick, or sent them to the asylum because the paintings drove them mad. Not sure if they got the painter equivalent of H.P. Lovecraft to do the portraits because that's some Cthulhu-level nonsense. Anyway, in time, the girl did have a few marriage proposals. But the side effect of being told you're better than everyone and everything ever for your whole life? You believe them. She told her mother that she wouldn't marry a king that was beneath her. And since everyone was beneath her, she wouldn't be marrying. No matter how many 2021 billion dollar parties were thrown for her. Also, maybe she was 15 and didn't want to marry. Seems pretty reasonable. The queen had taught the princess to be decisive and have resolve, to know her own worth. But now that she was actually doing all those things, it was super annoying. The mother didn't know what to do. Her daughter was 15. She was almost too old to get married. The queen panicked, and then she learned of the fairy. Like in the Zelda games, there existed, far off, a fairy that you could ask things of, and, unlike those in Zelda, probably didn't make questionable noises that made people look at you funny when you played the Switch in a public place. This fairy was called the Fairy of the Desert, but there was a problem. The lions. The fairy was guarded by lions. There was a solution, though, and it was the same solution that I found for my problems, emotionally speaking. Cake. It was a simple recipe, but the lions loved it. And if she tossed them the cake, she would be able to slip past them and make her request of the celebrated fairy of the desert. She put together millet seed, sugar candy, and crocodile's eggs, baked the cake, and made her way off into the desert with an armed guard. And that was how all of them died. Well, almost all of them. The queen woke up to one of her attendants staring at her. Well, staring through her. He was dead, and his body rocked violently with each bite of the lion. The queen scrambled up to a sitting position, and her hands felt for her bag, for the cake, but it was gone. She pushed back on the dirt, as the lions that guarded the fairy of the desert finished off the last of her entourage, and then turned their eyes to her. They closed in on her, surrounding the tree that she had pushed herself up against. She took a deep breath. So, this was how she died. If only she had found a match for her daughter before she went. Wait, you have a daughter? She heard from a voice above. The queen looked up to the mythological dwarf sitting in the tree above her, peeling an orange. The woman looked to the lions, who were closing in. Yeah, her daughter was 15 and still single. The dwarf shrugged as he munched on an orange wedge. Um, okay, wow. He had a proposal. It was a, well, a proposal. Huh? But really, he had been looking for a wife across land and sea. If the queen promised the princess to the dwarf, he would protect her from the lions. The queen uh, contorted her face. Yeah, uh, she had kings courting her. Not some random guy that her mom met in a tree, so she didn't know about that. Just then, one of the lions swiped out at the woman. They didn't break the skin, but they got close, tearing at her traveling clothes. Or die. I don't really care, the dwarf said. Time's a factor here, though. 
I can't protect you from the lions once they maul you. Ah, okay, okay. The dwarf could marry your daughter. The dwarf could marry Tutbel. That was the girl's name. The dwarf popped the last bit of orange in his mouth and threw away the peel. Wait, Tutbel? The girl who drives guys crazy and not in like the fine young cannibals song, but actually affecting their mental health? Ugh. No thanks. She's too beautiful. And that's actually what her name means. I guess all beautiful. Please, please marry her. Save me, the mother screamed out as the lions got closer. One reared up to strike. Okay, fine, but remember, you practically begged me to, the dwarf replied, and tapped on the tree. A door opened up in the tree right behind the queen, and she dove in. She heard the lion's swipe scratch the wood from the darkness of the interior. Down below, torches crackled. The queen descended the stairs, looking down into the murk and haze of the dwarf's subterranean home. It was something of a swamp beneath the desert. Round frogs leapt in fetid water before a house of mud and thatch. Here, the dwarf stood with his mother, the fairy of the desert. The dwarf wore wooden shoes and a yellow jacket, and the story says that he looked like the perfect little villain, which is outsourcing a lot of the work as a writer onto the imagination of your reader, but I'm going to do the same. The fairy of the desert, the dwarf's elderly mother, stepped forward, her dress dragging in the muck. She said she was excited for Tutbel to arrive. Don't worry, they would take good care of her. She would live her life down in this cave. She would drink this water and eat the fat frogs. They would live in sorrow if her own shadow were closer to her than her new husband and her mother-in-law. The queen, looking up at the smiling faces of the fairy and her son, couldn't take it. She staggered. She had just condemned her daughter, her whole life, to this. To be the captive of these people. What had she done? The darkness closed in, and she collapsed with a swoon, fainting in the muck. queen gasped awake, just as the lady's maid shrieked. She apologized to her queen. She didn't know the woman had returned from her trip to visit the desert fairy. The queen sat up in her bed. She was in her pajamas. How did she get here? The last thing she remembered was the gloating, grotesque faces of the fairy and her son. She asked the date. Apparently, she had been in their lair yesterday. A chill settled over her. She had promised her daughter to forces that she could barely comprehend. The funerals for her guards and attendants came and went. The queen grew distant, preferring to stay shut up in her room. She refused to even see her daughter, Tutbel, the light of her life. The girl's shining face filled the queen with guilt for what she had done and fear for the day that she knew was coming, the day that the fairy and the dwarf made good on their promise. On that day, the queen would be powerless to stop them. Toot Bell, though, cared for her mom. She knew all her mom had done for her growing up, and she wanted to help. But she couldn't help unless she knew what happened out there in the desert. Her mom refused to talk, so there was only one other way. She, too, 
baked the cake of millet seed, sugar candy, and crocodile eggs. But unlike her mother, there was no fanfare. Tootbell didn't even give a warning and slipped away alone in the night. It wasn't long before she, too, was before the orange tree, and it was no longer gnarled and withered. It was laden with oranges. The girl set down her pack, climbed the tree, plucked an orange, and in the absence of the orange, found two eyes staring back at her. She screamed and fell. The dwarf followed her and found her brushing herself off. He bowed low. Tootbell introduced herself and pointed to the orange tree. Had, had her mother been here? She always trailed off at the orange tree whenever someone tried to get the story out of her. The dwarf nodded. Oh, yeah, she had been here. The princess said she came seeking the fairy of the desert. Her mother had fallen into a deep sadness since her journey, and she wanted to know the cause of it, wanting to see. Then Tootbell trailed off. She took a deep breath. She wanted to see if she had contributed to it by her refusal to marry. The dwarf grinned. No, it hadn't been that. Not at all, actually. That question was settled. The princess cocked her head. Oh, how so? She hadn't accepted a proposal yet. The dwarf shook his head. Uh, he would hope not, because she had been promised. To him, actually. Tootbell laughed out loud. Uh, over her dead body. The dwarf was earnest. Oh, yeah, I mean, probably. They both heard the roars of lions as manes crested the far-off hill. The girl flew to her bag, containing the cake. But, as it had been for her mother, the cake was gone. The lions were coming. Hey, you get to make good on your phrase here. Not a lot of people get to do that. I'm proud of you, the dwarf said. Tootbell shook her head. No, no, no. She didn't want to die here. It was, it was an anachronistic turn of phrase, please. She said she would marry the dwarf. The dwarf shook his head. It, it, it felt weird now. He wanted the decision to be real. He didn't want to trap her. She said it was just shock at seeing his horrible face. No, she changed her mind. She, she looked back at the lion. She, uh, and then she did the same as her mother. She fainted. was Tootbell's wedding day. The king of the gold mines had been in love with her for years. He was also one of the few not sickened or driven mad by the beauty of her painting. So, you know, a catch. When Tootbell had woken up in her bed after her journey into the desert, she, like her mother, was sick to her stomach. To be coerced into marriage was disgusting, but she felt betrayed by her own mother, who had promised her to a creature to save her own skin. Now, Tootbell needed to save her own life. The story says she would have remained happy had she stayed single all her life. But now, now she needed protection. The dwarf couldn't marry her if she was already married. She picked one of the kings from a hat and said yes. Weeks later, the sea was choked with riches as the king of the gold mines, he was doing pretty well for himself if you can't guess by his name, prepared the greatest wedding festival in the history of the world for his bride-to-be. When the pair met, the day before their wedding, the princess expected yet another fawning sycophant 
who agreed with everything she said and made plans to parcel out her life and power the moment she was married. She didn't expect him. The king of the gold mines was thoughtful, intelligent. He could hold his own with her in wordplay. He made her laugh and didn't seem to care about how they were going to divvy up what power and who controlled what armies or such and such alliances. He seemed to actually care about her. The fact that he was extremely handsome also didn't hurt. The hours they talked felt like minutes, and soon, Tubel began to feel for him what he had felt for her for years. The king was so giving with his money, too, leaving bags of pearls and gold out for anyone to just come and take. I mean, this probably sparked violence and crashed the kingdom's economy in the process, and this show of extravagance made it so an uninvited guest riding a box pulled by two giant turkeys, was treated as a curiosity rather than feared, as she should have been. The color fled from the queen's face when she saw the woman, the fairy of the desert. Her wizened hands cracked the whips that spurred the turkeys onward. She called for a halt to this wedding. The princess had been promised to another. People looked around at one another. What was going on? To whom had the princess been promised? As if to answer the question, the box the turkeys had been pulling and the fairy had been riding flew open and the mythological dwarf leapt from it, riding atop a house cat the size of a lion. He pointed to the king. This king was a pretender, the one who was trying to steal his wedding. The king of the gold mines looked down at the mythological creature riding a cat and laughed. Uh, who did this guy think he was? Laying claim to the princess. The little monster. The king would teach him some manners. Outside. Now. And the dwarf, atop the cat, obliged. The pair descended the stairs, and the dwarf called out threats to the king. And the king see that he should debase himself to even fight such a creature. He wouldn't have to do that, as we'll see, because, as it turned out, When you're defending someone, you'll want to actually, you know, stay by their side and not leave them in the presence of a violent fairy. When the groom was a floor down and several hundred feet away, the fairy of the desert whistled. And a griffin, the creature with the body of a lion and the head and wings of an eagle, broke in through the window and tossed the fairy her spear. The magical woman took the spear and just started wailing on the princess, quote, beating her bloody for going back on her word. Toot Bell collapsed in her mom's arms, but she wouldn't stay there. With the cries of Toot Bell, the dwarf had his cue. He turned the cat, and instead of answering the king's challenge, he clawed back up the tapestry and made for the princess. He took the unconscious Toot Bell into his arms, and he and his cat boarded his mom's griffin. The trio was airborne before the king was back on that floor, and the last thing the king of the gold mines remembered seeing was the outstretched claws of the griffin coming for his face. We'll see what happens to the princess and see if the fairy and the dwarf are going to force her to make good on her coerced promise. But that will be right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The king awoke, dangling on the wall. The taste of blood was in his mouth. His head was pounding. Where was he? His hands rattled the chains above him. A sponge touched his face. The young woman who held it smiled a sad smile. Poor man. Poor king. Let me go. I demand it. The king of the gold mines spat. The woman took the sponge away. The king was in no position to be demanding anything. He had no power here. The king strained against the chains. Who brought him here? The fairy. The fairy of the desert, the young woman told him. She loves you. The king laughed. The old woman who beat his bride and kidnapped her on a griffin? How could she love him? She only just met him today. That's only one form she can take, the woman, the helper, said, resuming her washing of the king. And you only met your bride-to-be yesterday, so maybe don't try to high-road the fairy. I've been in love with Tootbell for years, the king cried. The mere mention of her name brought pain. Yeah, she's... 15. You saying you've loved her for years? You really want to pull that thread? What are you, 40? The caretaker asked the king. The king narrowed his eyes. But then something caught, said eyes. You, you have bird feet? The king asked. The caretaker straightened up. No, you have bird feet. She ducked behind a basket. And then he realized something. Like so many mythological creatures, the fairy's magic had limits. Those limits were, oddly enough, that she couldn't transform feet. The caretaker wasn't a helpful young woman, but the griffin, who had been transformed for this very purpose. The king threw his head back. It didn't matter. Sure, he could forget Tutbel, but you know what he would never forget? His imprisonment. You know, while he was being actively imprisoned kind of hard to miss. He would never love the fairy while he was trapped in a cell. The fairy, outside the cell door, listened to the king. Earlier that day, she had only planned on helping the dwarf kidnap the princess and maybe having some fun, killing some nobles. But then she saw him, the king, and decided that she, too, was ready to settle down with a compulsory spouse. Her heart was so full of love for him that she heard him when he asked for his freedom. She transformed into a younger version of herself, put on some shoes because he was onto the foot thing and she couldn't hide her own wizened feet, and entered the cell. Bell heard a sound like a trumpet from the sky. It carried over the crashing waves that she heard ceaselessly in her steel palace on the sea. The dwarf was maybe a little serious, 
when he said he didn't want to entrap her into a marriage because when she arrived at his house, he was angry that she didn't instantly love him after he kidnapped her from her wedding to another man. He told her that she could take her time. The cell, the kitchens, the expansive courtyard, it was all hers until she decided that she was ready to marry him. She, she said, okay. She kind of felt like he didn't understand the whole compulsory marriage thing, but she was fine with that. Now, sitting at her window, she looked up to the sky where she heard the honks like trumpets and saw him. Up there in the sky was the king of the gold mines and he was smiling in a chariot pulled by swans. That wasn't what filled her with despair though. Next to him, a woman rested her head on his shoulder and rubbed his chest as both looked off on the horizon. They disappeared into the clouds and the king's betrayal left Tutbel in tears. Of course, he was doing the only thing he could. He had one play here. The fairy loved him, and if he made her think that there was a chance that he might love her back, he might be able to get free and see Tutbel again. So he would do what he had to do. He and the fairy took up residence in an emerald palace, and weeks passed. Soon, he gained enough of her trust to be allowed to leave on his own. And then he saw why she would allow him to do that. He was on an island. And he could see, far off, that there was no hope of escape and no hope of rescue. Storms churned the surf ceaselessly. Lightning struck day and night. The beaches were calm, but the storms surrounded the island, just barely in view. He would never be able to leave. He would never be able to see his Tutbel again. He screamed all this, loudly at the water. He also wrote poetry in the sand, detailing his plight and his love for Tutbel. So the story says that, because of his behavior, the king of the gold mines attracted attention, quote, despite himself. I don't know, I feel like screaming your problems in verse is not really trying to keep things on the down low, but what do I know? That worked to his advantage, though, because while the fairy was giving him his me time, Someone else was listening. Someone in the water. The king was surprised by a half-woman, half-fish, scooting up on the beach in front of him. He said he didn't know if she knew his plight, but uh, she cut him off. She knew. She was helping. She and her people loved all the constant shouting of the amateur poetry, but they loved silence more. So she was going to take him to Toot Bell so he could rescue her. The king gasped. The mermaid knew where she was? The mermaid nodded, yep. She was crying almost as loud as the king here. They really were meant for each other. All right, did you want to hop on so they could get going? The king, not needing to be told twice, waded into the water. Oh, hey, but what about the magical fairy? Once she realized he was gone, she would scour the earth for him. He winked. He had that effect on some people. The mermaid grimaced, all right. She said she was taking care of it. She had magic too. On the beach, rushes, small sea plants, were crawling up from the surf like snails, slowly coming together to take the form of a human. The mermaid said a few words, and the rushes smoothed out. There was a corpse on the beach. 
the king's corpse, drowned and draped in seaweed. It was a perfect dead double. Wow, that's good, the king said. Yeah, so good that the fairy will be emotionally devastated by it and live the rest of her days in anguish. She'll call together all the rest of the fairies and they'll build a mausoleum in your honor, the mermaid noted. Yeah, I would probably have some more sympathy for her if she hadn't kidnapped me, held me against my will, and a bunch of other stuff we're not going to touch here. Let's go. We'll see the couple meet again, though they've really only talked for a couple of hours once before their wedding. Kind of undercuts the whole romantic relationship, but that will be right after this. King and the mermaid dove beneath the storms, only surfacing so that the king didn't actually drown. In a matter of hours, they were looking at the Palace of Steel, also on an island in the sea. The seaside of the castle was the only one that wouldn't, quote, burn up a trespasser on approach, which is not only a really cool sci-fi defense mechanism for a 17th century story, but kind of an oversight in a world where mermaids and other creatures exist. Regardless, as the two heads, the mermaid and the king riding on her back surfaced, the mermaid explained the situation. Toot Bell was inside the steel castle, and she hated the king of the gold mines because she saw him fly by with that beautiful fairy. The king of the gold mines was, again, about to despair loudly and in verse, but the mermaid dipped him below the water to muffle his sound. The king was distraught when she brought him back up. How? How will he ever get Toot Bell to love him again? Uh, by being an adult and talking through misunderstandings before they blow up into larger problems. You were about to get married, right? Because that happens, the mermaid said, but then continued. Anyway, you might not even live to resolve your relationship issues because, well, them. She pointed to the not one, not two, but four sphinxes that had just spotted them from the walls. Just FYI, depending on the mythology, Sphinxes have the head of a human, bird, cat, or sheep, one of these things is not like the other, the body of a lion, and the wings of a bird. Pretty much all of them all around the world, except the Egyptian sphinx, are evil. The mermaid and the king swam close to the dock, as the sphinxes fluttered down to the boardwalk to meet them. The mermaid pressed a sword into the king's hand. It was a diamond sword, a sword cut from a single diamond. The mermaid told the king good luck. She wouldn't be able to help him beyond this. The sword represented the rest of her magic. She needed time to rest. She dove under the water as the sphinxes roared. She said she would be waiting nearby for their escape. So a diamond sword is nice, and the story credits the sword with the king's victory. Though really, the king had to have had some training. I know if you put a diamond sword in my hand and told me to fight four sphinxes, the only difference the diamond sword would make would just be me dying with a really expensive sword in my hand. The king of the gold mines, though, breathing heavily, struck down at the final sphinx. He pulled his sword out in time for the dragons. Six dragons scurried out of the palace ahead of him and reared up. I'm guessing they had to be Komodo-sized dragonettes and not actual, full-sized Game of Thrones elder dragons. Still, once again, 
I don't know that I would do well against one Komodo dragon with scales like iron. Those things are intense. But also, once again, the king of the gold mines is not me, and he's reasonably competent at fighting. The story tells us that he cut them all, quote, in half. Not sure if that's in half like a hot dog or like a cheeseburger, but I do know that I'm being unnecessarily gruesome. So, like the king, we'll continue on. The king only went for a few more steps, though. It became clear to the guardians of the castle that monsters couldn't stop this guy. But how about some moral ambiguity? 24 female nymphs rushed out, holding a garland of flowers. They held it up like a velvet rope, trying to keep the king out not by force, but by convention and propriety. They begged the king, please, please don't pass. They would be punished if he did. He didn't want them hurt, did he? The king hesitated. He lowered his sword, but then shook his head. No, Tutbel was inside that castle. She needed him. He stepped forward, but now it wasn't the garland blocking him, but a line of women. He tried to force his way through, and they pushed him back. He didn't know what to do. He couldn't use his sword and attack unarmed women. He was a fairy tale knight and king. That was unheard of. Had he finally met his strike? Strike and spare no one, or you will lose the princess forever. The mermaid cried out from the water. And yeah, I mean, her intensity is surprising, but not as surprising as the fact that that was all the motivation the king needed to actually attack the unarmed women. He drew his sword and slashed out at them. Uh, the story doesn't go into great detail, save that the king made it through the doorway of the castle. The king found himself in the forest, in the castle's courtyard. He heard a bubbling stream and followed the sound until he saw her. Tutbel, kneeling beside it. She looked up and her gaze of surprise turned to hatred. So, he returned. What, did that beautiful older woman kick him out? He was about to get all indignant, saying that she had promised herself to a dwarf before marrying him, but he took a breath and remembered what the mermaid had said. Her advice wasn't limited to the mass slaughter of nymphs, but also, I guess, relationships. Talk it out. Be an adult. He said that he had been playing a part so he could find his way back to the one he loved, Tutbel. And it worked. Here he was. He had come for her, and it was time to go. Maybe because he was convincing, maybe because it was what she wanted to believe, but Tutbel smiled and, weeping, ran to her betrothed. He dropped the sword and took her into his arms, and the pair embraced, weeping. They were together again. Then, the king felt the sword, but not in his hand. The diamond tip lightly touched the back of his neck, drawing blood. He froze. The dwarf stood behind him. He had the king. The dwarf told the king to step away from his fiance. The king had no choice but to obey. Hands up. He stepped away from Tutbel. The dwarf kept the sword at the king's side while he looked at the pair. Well, now he completely controlled the destiny of his rival. 
All he had to do was move the sword just a bit more, and it could all be over. The dwarf turned his gaze to Tutbel as he circled the king. It was her choice, though. If she cared about the king, this pretender who interrupted their love, she could spare him. She only needed to agree to marry him, the dwarf, right now. And the king could walk free. No, the king screamed. He begged the princess to let him die a thousand deaths, rather than see her forced into a marriage she hated. The princess shook her head. She couldn't marry the creature. She refused, but she also didn't want the king to die. Let me die for you, my love, the king said. No, Tootbell cried. She would never ask that of him. But instead you'll make me watch as you take this dwarf as your husband, the king cried back. Tootbell said that 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 type of framing made it sound like he was the only victim here, but no, she wouldn't make him die for her. No, let me die for you, the king pleaded. No, I would rather die than have you die for me, the princess said. This went on, and the dwarf (sighs) watched with a sigh. All right, this is just boring now. He facepalmed, and after yet another round of no, let me die for you, and no, let me die for you, he decided to speed things up a bit. The king stopped talking when the diamond sword burst from his chest. There, I did it. We can all be finished with that conversation, the dwarf said as the king slumped to the ground, dead. The princess wailed, dropping to the body of her beloved. But her wailing didn't last long. In moments, she was silent. She died in a matter of minutes from a broken heart. And yes, I can't remember if I've corrected this, but since making fun of this concept repeatedly early on in the show, I've had several people who work in the medical field reach out saying that yes, it is actually a thing. The dwarf looked down at the couple, shaking his head. Oh, okay, yeah, wow, they were both dead now. Waste of everyone's time. He summoned what nymphs hadn't been killed by the king and told them to give these bodies the honors they deserved. The nymphs said the... They couldn't tell what he meant by that. The words sounded like he wanted to be nice, but he said it with a sneer, and I mean, they just lost like all their friends today, so they weren't really up for parsing through the different nuances. Throw them from the walls and leave them there, the dwarf clarified. Throw them from the walls. Got it, the nymph nodded, and did just that. The mermaid looked on the bodies of the king and the princess. It was tragic, and she couldn't do anything about it. Her magic had been used up to make the sword, so she didn't have enough to help them. But she could bring them back together, even if she couldn't bring them back to life. She swam away, saying goodbye to the king and Tutbel, though their bodies were gone. In their place, Two palm trees stood on the beach, bending toward each other, and they would remain that way, always together, forever.
I read a ton of these stories. And not only was this one kind of fun in the beginning with all its hyperbole, the billion dollar parties and the sonnet bonfires, but it ended in an unexpected place. Unlike, I'd say, most fairy tales, there was no deus ex machina that swoops in and saves their protagonists. They had it. They were free, and then the king dropped the sword. I love stories where actions have consequences, and in that instant, the story turned into a tragedy, where the competent dwarf turned the sword on the king. It's kind of a bittersweet ending, but as palm trees, they're beyond the reach of all those who try to imprison them. And they're also together. Madame Dolnois, the writer, was forced into an arranged marriage herself when she was 15 to a man that was three times her age. They had three children before they became estranged, and then she had three more children, daughters, who she supported with her writing. Knowing that, the confident 15-year-old at the beginning of the story, who was content never to marry, suddenly feels a lot more real. Next week, it's a landmark episode on this podcast. After 20 long years, Odysseus finally sets foot back on Ithaca, but his home is unrecognizable. There are strange, dangerous men in his house who have already plotted the death of his son, and each day his wife delays the decision to remarry. She risks igniting their ire. Odysseus survived the war, but he's only one man. Can he survive his own homecoming? If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a human organ transplant lunchbox, a lunchbox that makes it look like you're transporting human organs, and also eating them, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't make it look like you're a zombie who has their stuff together and packed their lunch the night before with a cold pack and everything. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. creature this week is the Ogama, from Japan. As we all know, when things live long enough, they get magical powers. And when toads live long enough, they grow super large, breathe rainbow smoke, and maybe eat people. I didn't know this, but maybe you did. All toads are evil. Frog and toad are not friends, because toad only has hate in his heart. When they live long enough, toads just keep on growing. Apparently, when they reach sizes of over 18 feet tall, they begin to see humans as an easy meal. Unless you make a habit of going into the deep woods, it's unlikely that you'll run into these creatures. They learned a long time ago, I guess, that humans are dangerous, and that once they get big enough, the toads might be hunted. If you do go into the wilderness, watch out. Because I guess toads craft spears, and will not hesitate to have a human kebab. They can get so big, that they might appear to be boulders or hillsides. So, if the hills literally have eyes, there's a drawing out there of fishermen running away from a hill that's looking at them, you might have just had an encounter with an Ogama. They can shapeshift. So, if you make a habit of stopping by random houses in the dark forest, don't do that, but also be on the lookout for a massive, malevolent toad. Also, if you have an old toad as a pet, and the next day that toad is gone, but your roommate suddenly has a lot of opinions on the tastiness of mealworms and crickets, you might want to find a new place to live. That's it for this week. 
Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music